Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. In today's episode, Patty Alwell interviews guest Sarah Payton on the neuroscience of language and emotions. Sarah is a neuroscience educator and trainer in nonviolent communication. And she combines her love of neuroscience and language in a rich discussion about how our choice of language can significantly impact the way we think, the way we feel, the way really and generally we respond to the world. Sarah has recently published a book called Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. This conversation I think will really resonate with most of our listeners out there who are incredibly interested in the way we hold our own capacity to heal ourselves and to connect to others. So enjoy. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Patty. I'm delighted to have you here with us today and have you speaking to our listeners. Thank you. I'm really excited and happy to be here. Thanks. I am really interested in your work. It's very rich and has a whole lot of different strains moving together. I know your most recent work that I'm familiar with is the interpersonal neurobiology, but you also have this long history of nonviolent communication, and you yes. have worked in the prison system, and so I would love you to tell us a little bit about how you came to your work. Oh, thank you. Well, I stumbled across nonviolent communication first. I used to be a used and rare book dealer, and I would drive all over the Pacific Northwest, and I would get audio recordings from the library. And I listened to Marshall Rosenberg, who's the guy who created nonviolent communication. And I went to a Marshall Rosenberg weekend. And at that weekend, people were using language in a very particular way. I had never experienced it before. Always before, when I had mentioned being emotionally upset or worried about something, people would either reassure me, you know, they'd say, oh, don't worry about it, it won't be that bad, you shouldn't think about it that way. Or they would tell me that it was nothing, sort of dismissing, like, oh, don't even think about it. You know, if you think about it, it just makes it worse. Or they would tell me how to solve the problem. Well, here's what you should do, they would say. So to have random, regular people using language in this very different way, which in nonviolent communication, there's a huge emphasis on what Marshall called needs, which are these deep values and longings that all of us have. So people would be listening for me and they would say, wow, is equality really important to you? (laughs) And I would be like, what? What is happening? Why are people talking to me this way? But I I noticed these changes happening for me, like long-standing grudges that I had had that I was talking about. All of a sudden, they were evaporating. I was having this very strange experience of fluidity. And I thought, why? You know, it it strikes me that in some ways it's like the first time you go to therapy, right? And you're not used to someone listening to you and responding to you in that way. Right. And I think that's Continue with your story. Yeah, yeah, the beauty of therapy, the beauty of getting into places where people are really listening to us instead of just trying to solve problems. 
at this point, this is where Matthew Lieberman enters the scene. And his beautiful work where he was looking at what happens when we use feeling words, how does it change the activity of the amygdala? For those of you who don't know Matthew, he is a UCLA cognitive social neuroscientist who's looking at, among other things, looking at the way people self-regulate. So how do people get themselves calm once they've gotten upset? And he did a beautiful piece of research with a number of other researchers where they, later he did more where he was looking at people and how they got themselves calm. But he was looking at what was the effect of seeing people's facial expressions, emotional facial expressions right in our faces. And what he discovered was that when we accurately name the facial expression that we're seeing, that first of all, we get upset. There's an amygdala response to intense facial expressions of rage or fear or grief. And when we name those emotions accurately, the activity in the amygdala falls by half. So I was like, here, yeah, here is the beginning of a place for me to understand why people using language differently put me into a space of fluidity instead of static holding of my stories. Yeah. Dan Siegel talks about name it to tame it. To tame it, it. exactly. Perhaps he was referencing this work, actually. He may very well have been, since uh, I think they work there in the same institution, possibly. And so... I think my whole exploration since that time has been essentially, why does naming it to tame it work? <laughs> and what, <laughs> here's the question that I always sit with, is what makes brains say yes to language? What kinds of language do we use that lets brains relax and move into a space of fluidity? It's been my inquiry in this book, It's been my inquiry at the prison. It's been my inquiry as I've thought about trauma and about healing from trauma. Because, as I say in the book, I I dedicate the book actually to my older adopted son who who died from the effects of childhood trauma. So obvious to see the trauma that he experienced when he was a little guy just kind of eating him alive in his late 20s and 30s. It took him about five years to, to after a, a very big revelation of early childhood trauma. He, he just never came back from that revelation. So my question is, how are brains impacted by trauma and how mm-hmm. do they heal from trauma? Because I kind of see language as the neurotransmitters of humanness. Like inside of a brain, we use little neurotransmitter packets, you know, to communicate from neuron to neuron. But outside of brains, we're separate. But somehow our brains Mm -hmm. move into synchrony with one another. And a part of that is both the nonverbal and the verbal communication between people. I love what you're saying, and I am so sad that that is the impetus for your work. Oh, thank you. But it is sometimes those kinds of pain move us forward in ways we don't expect. Yes, yes. As I, I didn't even realize it during that because it's 
the five years that it took him to sort of deliberately drink himself to death, I was working so hard in the world, traveling all over the world and speaking about this and doing workshops and writing. And and I realized when he died, I was like, oh, my God, I was trying to save him. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I kind of, it, it was a little bit of a revelation for me. And once he was gone, I was like, okay, well, I kind of have to regroup and figure out how to do this for myself and how to find the meaning in, in, there's deep meaning, of course, in doing it with others and just to, you know, tap into that meaning rather than or how to what had really yourself, been my right? my fuel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when did the focus on the communication move more into the focus on the brain? I think it was really that that it, the experience of having things shift was a particular kind of language. And then my, I am a very curious person, so I love to know why. So that it was almost an immediate, you know, kind of interweaving and interconnection. And luckily for me, my wonderings and my curiosity arose just as the work from the decade of the brain was really starting to be widely published and disseminated, just as Daniel Siegel's, you know, The Developing Mind was coming out and and his work, uh, the beautiful CD set, The Neurobiology of We. Oh, was, I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, so beautiful. I, yeah, I would drive and I would just... I would just replay, you know. I would I wouldn't understand it and I would go back and replay it again and again <laughs> trying to integrate it. Yeah. I think right. Dan Siegel has a lot of children in the therapy world. I always feel like, you know, his work was so important to a lot of us. Mhm. And is so important his continuing work. Yeah, continues to be such an inspiration. Yes. I've traveled across the world to hear him speak about different things that I was interested in that he wasn't necessarily speaking about in the U.S. One time I went to Copenhagen to hear him speak. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. This has really been kind of the bubbling matrix of my of my wondering is how are we moved and changed by the words we use with one another? And right. and in a way, you know, I was thinking before we got on the call today, I was thinking about how therapists are really poets of the soul. Mm. And there's something in particular about the way that words are, of course, also the nonverbals, but the words and the nonverbal connection and communication between client and therapist. It's interesting you say that because I had an experience with you as our emails went back and forth that it felt really connecting and more connected. And normally, to me, emails are a work, you know, Mm -hmm. tool. And it's like I am pretty precise and back and forth. But it felt, and I don't know whether it was you or me or having known your work a little bit, that, you know, we were responding a little differently, even though when I go back and read the words, I can't quite explain it. Mm. But it did feel like heightened connection every time we went back and forth. Wow, that's fun Does that surprise you? It's not exactly so much surprising as a little magical. Like how, (laughs) almost like that there are nonverbals with email 
as well somehow in the probably I often think about Dan Siegel's talking about contingent communication, about how do our words catch and reflect that we actually heard the other person. And I think there's some quality of that that comes through very subtly in written communication often, especially, I mean, just, you know, just kind of going through the whatever we need to do in order to be able to get connected enough to to meet in, in person on the phone or, you know, it's like we, we may be doing very simple things with our language and yet responsiveness, presence, mm-hmm. warmth, and contingency are all, I think, a part of what feed and nourish human brains. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. And as I've read parts of your book, what has struck me is that Although therapists often talk about words, you know, we we are always saying to our clients, you know, talk kindly to yourself. But you really zone in on how to do that in the specific words. And it just felt like there was the nonviolent communication has made your focus on words deeper and richer. Mm, thank you. It feels that way. I think that a part of my journey has been that I really came from being both avoidantly attached and disorganizedly attached. Like, so if you've if you've never been somebody like me who's given dived deeply into attachment, using the left hemisphere is a way to parent. It's a, the left hemisphere is a place where we're really focused on to do lists and what what needs to happen next and what's the schedule and when are the teeth brushed and like you know as a parent like all of the little things that we believe mean that we're a, a good parent does the child wearing their seatbelt in the car you know <laughs> there's all these things that just seem absolutely imperative and yet none of them in themselves are essentially relational so I came right. I came out of a world where language was not used relationally really very much at all. And so my relationship with my kids was really fraught with conflict. I was trying to figure out how to shift that. My study of how I was using words with my children really started to reveal to me the kind of breaks and chasms between getting the business of life done and having relational connection, it's almost like the the study of nonviolent communication allowed me to gradually, gradually open into relationality. And, of course, that's essential for therapy, right? So parenting, therapy, having a relationship <laughs> with a partner. Right. <laughs> Everything. But living a living. full life. Having <laughs> I mean, a full life. How do we get ourselves out of that cabinet of the left hemisphere that's got no relationality in it? Yeah. So I've been... Uh, so stirring the, the longing that really sent you out on this quest, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah. And then gradually to notice. So you're talking about like an intentional use of language that allows us, you know, to to move into relational space. We're both talking about that. 
But I also became very interested in what kind of language do we use with ourselves. And this now takes us into another field of research that Matthew Lieberman has been involved in, which is the default mode network. So what is the voice of our brain when we're not giving it anything to do? So what happens when we first wake up in the morning? How are we talking to ourselves? What are the words that are going through our mind? Or if there are no words, what's the emotional tone? Like is there a disappointment in the self? Like did we, as I, Sarah, wake up in the morning, am I disappointed to be Sarah? Am I disappointed Mm. to be meeting this life? You know, or am I like catching myself? You know, with my worries and my and my everything that has to be done. You know, is there a gentleness? Is there a warmth in relationship to the self? And part of Matthew Lieberman's research shows that when the brain is not directed towards something in particular, he puts people into MRI machines and gives them algebra problems to do. And in the one mm-hmm. second between algebra problems, the brain reverts to this social default network that mm-hmm. is sort of sewing us into our lives. Well, how does it, what does it remember? How does it, what is it worrying about in the future? What is it remembering with regret in our past? What is it making sure that we don't forget how effective, you know, is our default network in sort of so, I think of it as the brain's tailor, that it's taking past, present, and future and kind of binding them together. And of course, there's some research that shows that it's the source of our dreams, that that's what our dreams are doing. And that it's uh, it's what's also we use when we daydream in, you know, when our brain drifts off and we start to think of other things when we're in conversations or driving or or washing the dishes or so i became also very interested in what is the automatic voice of our brain and can it be changed and of course this is what therapy does even when therapists don't even know that this is what they're doing they're offering their clients relational connection that puts the brain into a neuroplastic place that allows change to begin to happen. And the way that people automatically speak to themselves or treat themselves begins to shift because a new option is being offered. When you say to your clients, don't speak to yourself unkindly, all of a sudden, there's like a, a. It's like you're you're parting the Red Sea of the default network. You're saying there might be something different possible here. Yeah. Right, and what really struck me with your work is that yes, as therapists, hopefully we are resetting that default mode with a kinder, gentler language. But you go straight at it with mm. a meditation and exercise designed for the default mode, which yeah. I love the specificity of your work. Oh, thank you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, the book is called Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. 
you know, I mean, people could have told me not to speak unkindly to myself until the cows came home if they hadn't modeled (laughs) something a little bit different, you know. I mean, I don't think in the beginning of my work I even understood that I was speaking so unkindly to myself. I remember once I I caught, I, I could catch a refrain of, I'm so tired, I'm so tired, I'm so tired. I could hear that voice. But I think that was the top voice, and I was so tired because there was a constant fight, you know, within me to be able to uh, even have the right to exist. Because as this book intertwines an understanding of the default network and the understanding of the impact of trauma and an understanding of the importance of warmth and precision in our language, what we start to see is that trauma really impacts the default network. So experiences... Mm -hmm of being alone create default networks that are trying so desperately to help us. You know, our default networks, as they criticize us until there's no shred of solid ground left for us to stand on, are so trying to support our well-being by making sure we never do whatever it was again. So how do we begin to catch that voice How do we, in a way, create something bigger that holds and nestles and responds to the voice of self-criticism? How do we turn toward that voice with precision and with, uh, with understanding? You know, I mean, it's a very surprising thing to begin to speak to the critical self witness, to speak aloud and say, Oh, Sarah's critical voice, are you just really uh, worried that Sarah's not going to be viable in this world? Are you wanting survival and even success? You know, (laughs) there's this funny little little silence in the brain (laughs) when you turn in that way towards towards that voice. Those voices are the things that kept us alive as a small child when trauma hit us. You know, if you have an abusive parent and the voice is, be as small as you can and don't make any noise, and maybe they won't come after you again. And you go through your life being as small as you can and not making any noise. Or whatever coping mechanism you come up with is first a survival mode. Yeah. How do we then turn to that little one, you know, within us and go, of course, you're quiet all the time. Of course, you get really scared when you find that you've broken your own rule and spoken out. I wonder if you need some acknowledgement of just how scary it was to have big mm. people be out of control. You know, there's a... And would you like some and while we're talking about this, would you like some acknowledgement that indeed when you spoke out you were re- you were it was a lot of danger. There was a lot of vulnerability there. There's something about see, there's there's a number of different ways to be precise with language. And one of them is to be precise with what the feeling tone really is. Another is to be precise with what the deep longing is for survival or for thriving or for peace or for room to grow or for the capacity to have your own timing. But then another kind of precision that's really interesting with language and which therapists do often without even knowing it all the time 
is to be precise about what the timing of the trauma is, that the trauma is no longer happening. Mm. Would you like acknowledgement that your body really did receive physical harm when you spoke up? By using the past tense, the person who's speaking without even knowing it is offering the brain precision. I, 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 this takes us back to Daniel Siegel's Name It to Tame It. And, right. uh, and a part of what's being named is that what happened that's so upsetting is in the past. And that the body and the person have very good reasons for predicting such things in the future. But that what really happened really did happen and it really happened in the past. It's another very interesting way to be precise with language that calms brains and that lets brains say, yes, I do need acknowledgement that being small and quiet was a very good idea when I was five. Yeah. And that it was when I was five, which is the point you're making. Yeah. And I'm now 50. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so often it is exactly this that people will say yes to when they're talking about trauma. I'm always, as I said, so interested. When do people say yes when you're, you know, making a warm inquiry? They say yes most often when you ask them if they need acknowledgement for what really happened. Mm. Yes, makes sense. Because part of what creates trauma, Bonnie Badenoch, who wrote the foreword to my book, was the first person who brought this research about the Nepalese boy soldiers from the Nepalese Civil War to my attention, that all the boy soldiers had the same experience. They were all in war. They were all having to kill people. They were all seeing people killed next to them, injuries, and so on. But the boys who went home to environments where they were received with welcome had much lower rates of PTSD than the boys who went home to environments where they were scorned and excluded. So, yeah, so this, I think, is beautiful research that starts to show us that it's not what happens during a trauma that's important to humans. It's important how we're received afterwards. There's some essential piece here about aloneness that we need to be accompanied in our experiences as humans. We need to be understood with warmth and understanding and resonance in order to be able to make sense of the difficult things that happen to us. I think the central tenet of all the work that we're talking about, whether it's Dan Siegel or Bonnie or some of the other names we've quoted, is that we heal in relationship. Yes, we heal in relationship. The idea that we can fix this on our own is just, Wrong. Yeah, yeah. And for those of us who, and certainly there's a huge, you know, component of our of our population in this country and in other countries who maybe don't at this moment even have access to someone who would accompany us. How do we begin to turn toward ourselves with warmth and to self-accompany? Not, I mean, I think it's always somehow integrated warmth that we're receiving from somebody else. But how do we scrabble together whatever bits and pieces we can in order to move forward and to even sometimes build enough trust 
to be able to reach out to a therapist. I want to clarify because I don't mean just a therapist. I mean, what struck me about your story is it wasn't a therapist that put you on the road. It was your children. Yes. It was the longing to connect with your kids yeah. was what motivated you. And it's often, you know, our struggles to have a good relationship with a partner or wanting to heal a wound with a parent or, you know, it's and and if we have to do it alone, it's developing that inner resource that you talk about in, in many of your meditations. It's almost like you're developing an internal resource. Yeah, and so I think what I love about this whole discussion is that it all weaves together. You know, we get a good experience with a therapist and we internalize them and carry them with us for the rest of our lives. Or we are able to begin to turn toward ourselves with warmth and then we can reach out and have a good experience with a therapist. You know, sort of like exactly. this, this very interesting monkey puzzle of that everybody begins kind of in a different place. And one of the statistics that I love it's a, a funny little statistic that people who have at least six months of therapy are much less likely to have to deal with addiction. Yeah, I've never heard that statistic. Yeah, it's wonderful. Quite a beautiful little statistic. That I think this is one that I carry around. I, I often find little pieces of research and then carry them around and turn them like little you know gems over and over in my hands. And this is one that I turn over and over in my hands because I think it speaks to the creation of a like a bird's eye view of ourselves. We get to see ourselves from outside ourselves for a little moment. I think Daniel Siegel is one who speaks about this so beautifully that when we begin to see the brain from as a brain rather than, you know, as the collection of our faults, um, right. <laughs> then, then it's almost like we're giving birth to self-compassion in the capacity to look at the brain from outside itself, that it almost always gives birth to compassion for people. I know right. that the... The comment that I love to receive the most when I'm presenting is when people will come up to me at the end of a hour or two hours or a day and they'll come up to me and they'll say, Sarah, I make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the headings in your book that I love. Yeah. People make sense. People make and sense. And I'd love you to speak a little more on that. that I I was very struck by that and it's, a, you know, it's, Three words, yeah. but it's it's very deep. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, as we're left to, uh, oh, I was going to say, you know, about this creation of a of a savage default network from trauma. That what I believe happens is with trauma when we're unaccompanied is is we're trying to make sense of it, and you know, the person who is there the most often in our history of traumas is us. So, you know, for a number of reasons, people left on their own tend to blame themselves or to build an idea that the world is relentlessly dangerous and horrifying. But the earlier the trauma starts, the more likely we are to blame ourselves. There's some research I've seen that shows that if the trauma happens after nine, people are more able to blame the outside world rather than themselves. But 
if anything happens before the age of nine, we're, we're, uh, we're already setting up a pattern of self-blame. When we are left alone, then we have to try to figure out how to take care of a brain that is suddenly impacted by the difficult event. And we know that the amygdala wires stuff together with just one exposure. When there's something traumatic that happens, everything involved in that trauma kind of gets wired together in a big lump of trauma in the brain. So then if you're a child trying to deal with this, there's all kinds of things that are wired together, including your sense of self can be wired into that lump of trauma, which means that whenever you try to touch into who you are, it leads immediately to the trauma. So right. so the default network involves the areas of the brain that are the sense of self, that carry the sense of self. So here we are, we, see, we start to see why trauma would negatively impact the default network. So here's just, you know, one example of starting to understand that events that have been difficult, where we have not been met with warmth and resonance afterwards, where maybe nobody else even knows about them, create an experience of having any entry into consideration of the self be connected with with horror and dismay and shame and rage mm-hmm. and fear. And then that in itself is unmanageable. So we kind of try to stay out of the right hemisphere. After having had the sense of self-wired into the trauma, we'll do anything we can not to go into that traumatized right hemisphere because it's, you know, rife with pain. And interestingly enough, when we're thinking about, you know, adolescent boys and, 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 and adolescent girls and other folks who might have indeterminate or neutral genders, the experience of having a traumatized default network can make being quiet really unbearable. It's very interesting to me that video games and cigarettes are the two things that turn off the default network most completely. Wow, I did not know that. That's intriguing. Video games and And cigarettes. cigarettes. yeah. Strange linking. Yeah, yeah. And of course we're talking a lot these days about kids with video game addictions. What if in Well and what strikes me is that psychiatrists have known for years that people with schizophrenia almost always smoke and no one's ever said oh, it, to my knowledge, I've never heard an explanation of that. And so the fact that you're saying it turns off the default network and you know if you're if you are having auditory hallucinations and it's saying things to you like telling you awful things and you can smoke a cigarette and calm that voice that's that would so be cool. pretty exciting yeah i did not know that's that about schizophrenia that really makes sense so here we if are you again, ever work people, at people a at a psychiatric hospital yeah. you will you will learn it because every I, I mean almost all schizophrenics for some reason smoke cigarettes yeah so all of these all of these things you know that we're learning gradually that we used to blame ourselves for all of a sudden start to make sense you know depression begins to make sense anxiety starts to make sense, the the impact that trauma has on the default network and why we would be uh, cruel to ourselves begins to make sense. And so 
I think that it's really a it's really a radical. It's really a radical. I think interpersonal neurobiology takes us into a new world. And when you started to talk about sort of you know stepping back and viewing the brain as a brain, what came up for me, and I'm not talking about the traumatized person necessarily, because it's pretty clear why this wouldn't be as attractive. But for me, inspiring curiosity in my clients, this sort of like, oh, let me be interested in myself Mm. and why I'm doing the things I'm doing. It's seems to be so important in healing, that sort of curiosity, which in my mind leads to the compassion, too. It does, yeah. It's sort of a hallmark of engaged compassion. Right. Yeah. Sarah, this has been very fun and stimulating. And I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we wrap up. Oh, thank you, Patty. I think just to say that, as I said, you know, that that therapists already are, in a way, the poets of the human soul. And to hold the language part of the relationship with the conscious precision that's possible really, I think, begins to awaken a a new excitement and a different kind of excitement about almost the revelations that come with every sentence of expression and dialogue. Well, you know, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking it's not an accident that you, your career before was in books, and it (laughs) made me really curious if that had been a way not to be alone when you were younger, like, did you live your life in books, you know? Oh, that brings tears to my eyes. Yes, I did. I absolutely did. Yeah. So the words have been healing for you, and you found a way to extend that to all of us. So listeners, please, if you have more questions or want to find the link to Sarah's book, come to our show notes. And... Come back and learn more on Therapist Uncensored. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Olwell, and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.